I greet each of you this morning in the name of Jesus. It's been good to be here with you and worship the Lord this morning. I've enjoyed the service thus far. And I want to say happy Mother's Day to each of you among us who have an indispensable role to play in changing the world and in building the church of tomorrow. My message this morning is geared toward the mothers, and I know that the majority of you here are not mothers, but I trust that the Spirit can somehow use the message to, to encourage each of us, whether we're a mother or whether we're not. I've noticed a fad, I think you could say, in our society today for some moms to attempt to go above and beyond what the average mother does. And there's a name for this. We call these women super moms. I don't know if you've heard this term or not, but I've heard the term a super mom. I found a dictionary definition of a supermom. It was this, an exemplary or exceptional mother, especially one who successfully manages a home and brings up children while also having a full-time job. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a supermom. I don't know what picture you get. I want to just share the picture that I get when I think of a supermom. When I think of a supermom, I think of a young lady with Numerous young children around her, all of her children dressed probably in designer clothes that she found at a thrift store or a yard sale. She has a tidy house, a weed-free garden. Her children are well-behaved. She always feeds them healthy, nutritious meals. She probably has homemade crafts that she makes and sells in her Etsy shop. And if you ask her, how do you do it? She'll probably say, well, you could follow me on my blog. <laughs> and that's kind of the picture I get when I think of today's super moms. But I believe that the world's definition of a super mom is not always the same as God's definition. What God views when he sees a super mom. So this morning I want to look at several things that I believe are traits that God sees when he sees a supermom. And the list that, I've, that I'm going to give is not all-inclusive. Other things could be added to this. But I've entitled the message this morning, Four Traits of a True Supermom. Now, I know several of the mothers in this congregation fairly well, and so I'm very aware that y'all have some supermoms among you, some true supermoms. And... Those of you who I don't know as well, I'm confident that you two are super moms. And so I would commend you for that. I believe that our mothers are often overworked and underappreciated, but yet you truly are an unsung hero in the kingdom of God. And so Lord bless you for that and for, your, for the role you play. And yes, oftentimes it's, a, it's behind the scenes. Most of us don't see what you do. Uh, but you do a lot for the kingdom of God and for your home and for the community. I've heard it said that an ounce of mother is worth a pound of preacher, and I think that's very true. So the first trait of a supermom is very basic, very fundamental, very foundational, and that is a supermom loves. I believe that 
God has placed inside of all mothers uh, natural love for her children, for her families. It's not just something that Christians possess, but God has placed this inside all of mothers. Some time ago, I had an opportunity to eat lunch with a Chinese couple, and this couple had a young daughter, and they weren't believers, they weren't Christians, but it was, it was exciting to see the love that this mother had for her little baby. And different times throughout the meal, she would be asked if, if she wanted something, whether it was uh, sweet tea or dessert or whatever, and she would turn it down because of the baby. And, and, and with a smile on her face, she would turn it down because of the baby. She, she wanted what was best for her baby, and so she was willing to, to give up something she would have enjoyed because of her baby. It was this natural love that God has placed inside of all women. We have biblical examples of this as well. In 1 Kings 3, we have the two harlots that came to Solomon with a dispute over a baby. One baby had died, one baby was living, and they were fighting over this living baby. And Solomon tapped into the love of a mother in order to figure out this dispute and see who the real mother was. Then in Isaiah 49, verse 15, the love of a mother is used to illustrate God's love and care for his children. The, uh, the question is asked, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? And all of us say, well, hardly. A woman wouldn't forget her baby because of the love of a mother. But then it goes on and says, they may forget, but God won't. I'll never forget you. And so it, it uses the love of a mother to demonstrate, to illustrate God's love for us. But in spite of this God-given trait, you mothers know that some days this love does not always come natural. Children can try your patience, they can change your plans, and they can make life difficult at times. But I believe a true supermom continues to love even when it's difficult, even when it's not easy. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. Here in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul refers to the gentleness of a mother to describe how he is relating to the church. I want to read verses 7 through 9. First Thessalonians 2. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Or in the NIV it says, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. And then verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. So what I see here, Paul, again, using the gentleness of a mother, the love of a mother, uh, as an illustration, and he's talking about what he was willing to do in order to share the gospel with his church. And you see that he was willing to sacrifice his own comfort, his own sleep, his own uh, temporal pleasures for the good of this church. 
And he, again, compares that to a mother. And, and mothers do the same thing. They give of themselves. They sacrifice their time, their comfort, their sleep for the good of their children. I wanted to read verse 8 out of the NIV as well. It says it this way, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. So you see that love that Paul had for the church, that he was willing not only to share the gospel, but also to share his life with the church, to give of himself for their eternal good. And I think he looked to a mother. I think we can, as mothers, you as mothers can look to Paul uh, for the way he cared for the church. It's a, it's a good example. Loving them so much that not only are you training them, not only are you sharing the gospel with your children, you're willing to give your life for them. Give up your pleasures. Give up what you desire for your children because you're concerned about their eternal good. So a true mother loves even when it's difficult. Mothers, your children are a big part of your mission field. Love them so much that you're willing to sacrifice your time, your well-being, in order to bring them to Christ, in order to point them to Christ. So again, I believe that God has placed love inside of a mother for their children, but I would suggest this morning that a true supermom's love will extend far beyond the walls of her home. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. Other places where you as a mom should be showing your love beyond just your children. And the first thing I've put is your husband. One of the best things that you can give to your children is a good marriage. Respect him. Speak well of him. Submit to him. Let him be the leader. There should be no doubt in your child's mind that mom and dad love each other. And that's a wonderful blessing to a family when mom and dad love each other. And when that's not present, it tends to to, to draw children away from God and away from their parents when that love between mom and dad isn't there. So love your husband. Love your church. I know with young children, I'm in that stage now, it's not always easy to get everybody ready and go to church. But try to be there when the doors are open. Try your best to be there. Be willing to serve. And be willing to serve cheerfully. Just not too long ago, my wife heard a young mother make the comment that, She was asked to do something in church, and she said, I can't believe they asked me. I have a child. And I know it can be difficult, but be willing to serve. Be willing to be used in the church. And I know sometimes you have to say no. We can't do everything. But let your children see where your affections really are. Let Let them observe you cheerfully serving others in the church. Be hospitable. Invite others to your home. Again, speak well of the leaders. Submit to them. Obey the standards of your church. Again, cheerfully. If your children see you pushing the lines, 
you're telling them that the lines aren't important. So submit cheerfully. Love your neighbors. Jesus told us in his gospel that the second greatest command is to love your neighbor. And then he illustrated what he had in mind by this command with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is your neighbor? And he used this parable to show the people who your neighbor really is. Your neighbor is the one that God has placed in your path that has a need. That's who God, that's who Jesus showed us in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan that our neighbor is. So mothers, yes, oftentimes you're confined to the walls of your home. But as you get out, love your neighbors. Reach out to the needs around us. I think all of us have within us a desire to reach out to others, to to meet needs around us. But in our day and age, with with the technology we have, with the internet, with our phones, we now have the ability to minister to needs around the world, to communicate with people across the country. And, and this is good. With the click of a mouse, we can, we can send money to, to Africa. Or we can, uh, we can tell a friend across the country that we're praying for them. And, and these are good things. But sometimes I fear that it's so easy for us now to meet needs around the world that sometimes we miss the needs in our own path. We miss the needs that are right among us. And so often we get so involved in... in, in keeping up with people across the country, friends that we never see, and we miss the people in our own congregation. We, we, we follow needs and we, we tell people we're praying for them and we forget that right across the street there's someone we could go and pray with. And so don't, don't overlook the needs that God has placed in your path. Love your neighbor. Reach out to your neighbors, whoever that may be. And then most importantly, love God. Your children should know that God is number one in your life. They should know that you take time out of your busy schedule to read his word. They should hear you pray. So a super mom not only loves her children, but she also loves her husband. She loves the church. She loves her community. And she loves God. So mothers, continue to love sacrificially. Continue to give of yourself, and the Lord will reward you for it. The second trait, then, is that a supermom is intentional in her child rearing, and she has a set goal in mind. Proverbs 10, verse 1 says, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. As parents, it's often easy to be overwhelmed by the cares of today and we forget tomorrow we forget what what we're really what what our training really is what the fruit really is going to be and our discipline should be done in love for the child and with his eternal good in mind not just to make our day easier but for his good turn turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 Here in this passage, Moses is encouraging the children of Israel 
to obey the, the commands and the laws that God had given them. And he tells them some things that is important to do if the next generation is going to keep these commands. And here's what he says, Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. So here in these verses we see very intentional child training. Doing things very intentionally with purpose in order to show our children, show the next generation what God has done for us. Things that cause our children to ask questions. To say, what do these things mean? And then we can sit them down and say, let me tell you about what God has done. So verse 7, we see Moses encouraging them to always be looking for opportunities to show your children what God has done. When you're relaxing in your house, when you're going about your work, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up, all throughout the day, be looking for these opportunities to point your children to God. And then verse 8 and 9, intentionally doing things to get your children to ask questions. The things that you put on your walls, on your post, uh, everything you do, do intentional things to get your children to ask questions. And then if you go to verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6, we read this. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you. So you're going to do all these things, and then when your son is older, when your child is older, they're going to say, now what do these things mean? And then verse 21, then thou shalt say unto thy son, now you have an opportunity. Because of the intentional things that you've done, because of the steps that you've taken, now you have these opportunities to share with your children the gospel. Not necessarily in a Sunday school setting or whatever, but just as you go about your day. Let me tell you what God has done for me. See, we used to be slaves in Egypt, and God brought us through the wilderness, and he did all these miraculous things for us, and, and you can tell your children about this, and they're going to they're gonna say, wow, you know, tell us more about, about what God did for you, and, and they're going to they're gonna, Learn about what what God did in the wilderness, how God provided for them, how God brought them out of slavery, out of bondage. And and you're going to instill a passion in your child for this God that you serve. Being intentional. If you go then to Judges, and you don't have to turn to this, but many years after Moses had told the people this, in Judges 2... Verse 10. This is after Joshua died. And we have this verse. It says this. So Joshua had passed away. And then it says, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord. 
nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So Moses had given these specific commands. Here's what you do so that your children don't forget. And yet we see years later, somebody dropped the ball. Somebody wasn't intentional. Somebody didn't pass these stories on to their children. And all of a sudden, you have this generation coming that knew not God. And they didn't know what God had done for the children of Israel. And what a terrible verse. What happened? Who wasn't intentional? For some reason, the parents hadn't passed the goodness of God on to the next generation. And may this never be said of us. Let's intentionally do things so that we instill in our children a passion for God and, for, and, and tell our children of what God has done for us, the good things that he's done. And I do want to mention child training is not at all the mother's sole responsibility. It's, it's the parent's responsibility. And, it, and it's also the responsibility of the church. But yet, the mother spends by far the most time with her children. So you have a very significant role, mother, mothers, to play in this. So look for opportunities. The music you play in the house, the books you read to your children, the pictures you have on the wall. Do these things cause your children to ask questions? Do these things give you opportunity to share with your children what God has done for you? Let's be intentional in our child training. The third trait, then, is that a super mom is submissive to God's plan for her children. And I think maybe this is one of the harder things to do as parents, is to submit, for God's plan, to, submit to God's plan for our children. In Psalm 127, verses 3 and 4, we read this, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. So we see in these verses, number one, that children are a gift from God. They are given to us from God. And then it goes on to compare our children with arrows. Now you've probably heard this illustration before, but when you think of an arrow, the only way for an arrow to be effective is number one, it must be made correctly. It's got to be straight. It's got to be balanced. It's, everything's got to be done just right so that when you shoot that arrow, it goes where you're, you want it to go. If it's bent, if it's, if it's out of tune, that arrow is not going to fly where you want it to fly. And that's, that's a picture of child training. As we train our children, we are forming arrows. We are crafting arrows so that they can go where we want them to go. And if, if we don't do it correctly, then who knows where they'll end up. But the other important thing to think about when you think about an arrow, the other thing that's important for that arrow to be effective is you must let it go. You can have a perfect arrow, straight as an arrow, but if you don't let it go, it's not going to be effective. If you just set it on the shelf for people to see, it's not going to do anyone any good. And it's the same with our children. We must form them correctly, and then we must let them go to serve in the kingdom of God. What is our goal for our children? Is our goal that they will be successful by the world's standards, or is our goal for our children 
that they will go and be used in the kingdom of God? And do we encourage our children to allow God to use them, to go where God sends them? Yes, we like our children close, but what is the goal for our children? And this is, this is an area where I'm, I'm still in the crafting stage. And I don't know what it's like to, to let your children go. I can imagine it's difficult. We like to keep them close. We like to wrap them in bubble wrap, as it were, and make sure that nothing harms them. But I trust that for me, when my children become of age, that I can let them go to serve in the kingdom of God, wherever that is, he calls them to. Jesus talked about the need that he said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must hate father and mother. And I have to wonder if part of why Jesus said this was because he knew the tendency of parents to hold on to their children, to not let them go. And so he said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to pull yourself away from that and follow where I lead you. But parents, let's not make our children hate us in order to follow Christ, but rather let's encourage them to follow Christ. Let's encourage them to go where he sends them so that they don't have to pull themselves away in order to do what God calls them to do. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I want to look now at the example of Hannah. I want to begin by reading verses 9 through 11 of 1 Samuel 1. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou would indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then will I give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So here in these verses, we see Hannah's extreme anguish. And I'm assuming most of you know the story of Hannah. She was barren. She didn't have any children. And that's hard for any woman. And I'm sure there's people here that know what that's like. But it was especially hard for Hannah because not only was she barren, but there was also another wife in the picture who mocked her because of it. And, and so it was humiliating for her. And so she's crying out to God here. She wanted a child. And, you know, today... As young couples, we get married, and we just assume that children are going to come. And after so many years when children don't come, we begin to realize that children truly are a gift from God. They truly are given to us from God. And that's where Hannah was at here. She realized her dependency on God. She realized that it was only God that was going to give her a child. Go now to verse 17. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition which thou hast asked of him. 
And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, when the time was come about, after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. So here we see God fulfilling his promise to Hannah and giving her a son. Go now to verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So here we see Hannah fulfilling this vow that she made to God, bringing Samuel to the temple and giving him back to God. And I can just imagine how difficult this must have been for Hannah, her only child, this child she longed for so long, And now she was giving him up, giving him back to God at a young age. Now, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this account. But just several things I want to point out. Number one, we must remember that God is the giver of life. Our children are a gift from God. And whether our children come easily for us, or whether we have to beg God for them, our response should be the same as Hannah. God has given me this child, and I'm going to give him back to the Lord. This, this child is a gift from God, and so as God sees fit, that's what I'm going to allow this child to do. Verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I have asked of him. It seems that this verse here has become very popular to put on baby announcements. I see it oftentimes on baby announcements. For this child I have prayed, and the Lord has given him to me. And, and it's good. I, I like it. But I have to wonder, why didn't anybody ever put verse 28? Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. Maybe we should include that verse in our baby announcements. Yes, God has given me this child, and I'm giving him back. That should be our attitude. And I don't expect to see that on your next baby announcement. Maybe it doesn't flow right. Maybe that's why. But I think it should be our attitude that this gift from God, I want him to be used for God. So as parents, we spend years crafting our arrows. Let's remember that the only way for them to be effective is if we let them go. The fourth trait, then, of a supermom is that a supermom is content with the role that God has given her. When God created the woman, he had a specific role for her to accomplish. And I would say that throughout history, women have done a fairly good job 
at fulfilling this role that God has designed for them to do. But it seems that in the last, I don't know, 60 years or so, this has kind of changed. And I'm not talking about our women, our Anabaptist women. I'm talking more the women around us, the women in the world, have become very discontent with the role that God has called them to. I wrote down a number of verses that we find that that talk about the role of the woman, and I'm not going to read them all, but uh, in Genesis 2, we see that God made her to be a helpmeet for the man. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about the order of headship, that the head of the woman is the man. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about the woman's role in the church, uh, that, that she not be used, that, that she be silent, that she not be used to, to teach men. Uh, in Ephesians, it talks about wives submitting to your husbands. Uh, in Titus 2, I think I'll read this one, 2 verses 4 and 5, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, most women in the world would not be happy with me reading these verses. They don't like these verses because their cry has been, we are equal to men and we should be able to have the same opportunities that they do. But notice in these verses These verses, and I know I didn't read them all, but I think you're familiar with most of them. These verses don't put women on a different level than men. Women are still equal with men, but their role is different. God has assigned them to a different role. And, again, I would commend you women here for fulfilling that role that God has called you to. I think our women have done a very good job at that, but our society hasn't. God has a very special and a very distinct role for you as women in the church. And if you look throughout the New Testament, there are many, many women who played a vital role in the, in the life of the church. And you could have a whole message on women who, who influenced the church. But yet, it's, your role is still different from that of a man. So don't let the cry of the women liberators drown out the call of God in your life. I thought I'd share just a little history lesson. In 1848, the women's rights movement began by a woman named Elizabeth Cady Stanton. At a tea party, the course of their conversation turned to the situation of women. Stanton poured out her discontent with the limitations placed under her own situation under America's new democracy. They began to hold some conventions, and their message began spreading rapidly, and change started taking place. So that was in 1848. Then in 1963, over 100 years later, Betty Friedan published a landmark book, The Feminine Mystique. The book became an immediate bestseller and inspired thousands of women to look for fulfillment beyond the role of homemaker. And then in 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment, which uh, we hear a lot about today, the Equal Rights Amendment, which had languished in Congress for almost 50 years, was finally passed and sent to the states for ratification. The wording of the ERA was simple. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States 
or by any state on account of sex. So that was 1972, and still today, oftentimes we hear in the news women who are discontent with where they're at. They want more equality. They want uh, management positions in, in the workforce and, and all these things. And I'm not faulting them totally for this. Women have been uh, mistreated throughout history. And, and I, I understand the, the, their concerns, and, and it's legitimate. But the problem is they become very discontent with the role that God has called them to. Now, why do I share all this? I believe that what our society does has a profound impact on us as a church. And what we see in the world influences us. The women liberators are trying to tell us that women have the same role as men. I believe that the push for mothers to leave the home and join the workforce has caused our nation an untold amount of problems. We have no idea the impact that this has had on our country. Broken marriages, single-parent homes, untrained children, I think even the obesity crisis can all be pointed, maybe not entirely, but largely to the woman leaving her role that God intended for her to, to keep. About a year ago, I was listening to the news, and I heard something that really struck me. There was a demonstration, and they called it A Day Without a Woman. And I want, I want to read, I don't know, maybe some of you remember this. I think, I think maybe they do it every year now. But uh, I want to read you something I found about it. It says, for, for the demonstration, A Day Without a Woman, feminist leaders are urging supporters to wear red on Wednesday, International Women's Day, and take whatever action they can to show their economic power, whether that's skipping work, avoiding spending money, or buying only from women-owned minority or minority-owned businesses. We want people to strike if they're able, she said. If you can't strike, we're encouraging participation by having an economic impact in some other way. For example, don't go shopping, don't buy gas, don't buy groceries. If you must go shopping, buy from a local woman-owned business. Open bank accounts at credit unions or small local banks. Find a progressive woman who is running and support her. The idea, she said, is for women to flex their economic might and send a message that women's work matters. And when I heard this news, I thought, how ironic. Women are going to stay at home to show us the value they have on our society. (laughs) I think that women showed us the value they had on our society when they left the home. Since then, our world has fallen apart. Our society has crumbled. Values have crumbled. Morals have decayed. The divorce rate has skyrocketed. And I think largely because women left the role that God called them to. And we should be on our guard against this influence creeping into our church. And I'm not saying that to say that it's wrong for you women to make a little money, for you to have a part-time job. I'm I'm not implying that at all, but just don't forget the role that God called you to. God has a very distinct role for you to play. And, and don't lose sight of that. Make sure you fulfill the role that God has called you to have. I want to end now with some encouragement for the rest of us. If 
you're still at 1 Samuel 1, I think we can learn some good lessons from Hannah's husband, Elkanah. In verses 4 and 5 of 1 Samuel 1, we read this. And when the time, and when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peniah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. So here we see Hannah's husband, Elkanah, supporting her wife in her difficulty standing by her, uh, encouraging her, supporting her in this difficult time that she was facing. And I think that's an important lesson for the rest of us. Go now to, to verse 21. This is after Samuel had been born. Hannah had vowed to give Samuel back. And now verse 21, we read this. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So so you remember, Hannah said she was going to give her child back. And now Elkanah is going back to the temple to offer his sacrifice. Verse 22, But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. So, you get the feeling in this verse that Hannah is stalling a little bit. She, she made this vow, but yet she wants to stay at home for a few years. She wants to keep Samuel with her for a few years. And so verse 23, And Elkanah her husband said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good, tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. So here we see Elkanah encouraging her, his wife to keep the vow that she made to God. Don't forget this vow. And he's doing it in a very tender way, a very loving way, but yet he's reminding her, don't forget the vow you made to God. And for the rest of us, I think that's a, a good encouragement. Our women face a lot every day. They go through much more than most of us see. Are we being an encouragement to them? Are we supporting them? Are we reminding them of what God's call is for them in their life? Let's never be tempted to think, I'm glad those kids aren't my problem. Because as a church, they are our problem. We should be in this together. We should love them. We should support the mothers with us. Now one concern I had as I prepared this message was, I hope you don't think that I'm calling you to too high of a standard that's uh, a standard that's not attainable. I, again, I want to commend you, mothers, for the tremendous job you do. You do a tremendous work. Keep it up, and God will bless you for it. Shall we have a song?